Chapter 7 of The Lone Wolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lone Wolf by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter 7 La Bay. His secret uncovered, that essential incognito of his punctured, his vanity touched to the quick. All that laboriously constructed edifice of art and chicane which yesterday had seemed so substantial, so impregnable a wall between the lone wolf and the world, today rent, torn asunder, and cast down in ruins about his feet. Lanyard wasted time neither in profitless lamentation or any other sort of repining. He had much to do before morning, to determine, as definitely as might in discretion be possible, who had fathomed his secret and how, to calculate what chance he still had of pursuing his career without exposure and disaster, and to arrange, if investigation warranted his expectations, which were of the gloomiest, to withdraw in good order, with all honors of war, from that dangerous field, delaying only long enough to revise plans disarrayed by the discoveries of this last bad quarter of an hour, he put out the lights and went out by the courtyard door, for it was just possible that those whose sardonic whim it had been to name themselves the pack might have stationed agents in the street to follow their disocial brother in crime. And now more than ever Lanyard was firmly bent on going his own way unwatched. His own way first led him stealthily past the door of the concierge and through the court to the public hall in the main body of the building. Happily, there were no lights to betray him, had anyone been awake to notice. For thanks to Parisian notions of economy, even the best apartment house dispenses with elevator boys and with lights that burn up real money every hour of the night. By pressing a button beside the door and entering, however, Lanyard could have obtained light in the hallways for five minutes, or long enough to enable any tenant to find his front door and keyhole therein at the end of which period the lamps would automatically have extinguished themselves, or by entering a narrow-chested box of about the dimensions of a generous coffin, and pressing a button bearing the number of the floor at which he wished to alight, he could have been comfortably wafted aloft without sign of more human agency. But he prudently availed himself of neither of these conveniences. Afoot and in complete darkness, he made the ascent of five flights of winding stairs to the door of an apartment on the sixth floor. Here a flash from a pocket lamp located the keyhole. The key turned without sound, the door swung on silent hinges. Once inside, the adventurer moved more freely, with less precaution against noise. He was on known ground, and alone. The apartment, though furnished, was untenanted, and so would remain as long as Lanyard continued to pay the rent from London under an assumed name. It was the convenience of this refuge and avenue of retreat, indeed, which had dictated his choice of the Rue de Chasse, for the sixth-floor flat possessed one invaluable advantage, a window on a level with the roof of the adjoining building. Two minutes' examination sufficed to prove that here, at least, the pack had not trespassed. Five minutes later, Lanyard picked the common lock of a door opening from the roof of an apartment house on the furthest corner of the block, found his way downstairs, tapped on the door of the concierge, chanted that venerable open sesame of Paris, Cordon, s'il vous plaît, and was made free of the street by a worthy guardian too sleepy to challenge the identity of this late departing guest. He walked three blocks, picked up a taxicab, and in ten minutes more was set down at the Gare d'Invalades. Passing through the station without pause, he took to the streets afoot, following the boulevard Saint-Germain to the Rue de Bac. A brief walk up this time-worn thoroughfare brought him to the ample, open, and unguarded porte cochere of a court walled with beetling ancient tenements. When he made sure that the courtyard was deserted, Lanyard addressed himself to a door on the right, which to his knock swung promptly ajar with a clicking latch. At the same time, the adventurer whipped from underneath his cloak a small black velvet visor and adjusted it to mask the upper half of his face. Then entering a narrow and odorous corridor, whose obscurity was emphasized by a lonely guttering candle, 
he turned the knob of the first door and walked into a small, ill-furnished room. A spare-bodied young man, who had been reading at a desk by the light of an oil lamp with a heavy green shade, rose and bowed courteously. "'Good morning, monsieur,' he said with the cordiality of one who greets an acquaintance of old standing. "'Be seated,' he added, indicating an armchair beside the desk. "'It seems long since one has had the honor of a call for monsieur.' "'That is so,' Lanyard admitted, sitting down. The young man followed suit. The lamplight, striking across his face beneath the greenish penumbra of the shade, discovered a countenance of Hebraic cast. "'Monsieur has something to show me, eh?' "'But naturally.' Lanyard's reply just escaped a suspicion of curtness. "'As, who should say, what did you expect?' He was puzzled by something strange and new in the attitude of this young man, a trace of reserve and constraint. They had been meeting from time to time for several years, conducting their secret and lawless business according to a formula invented by Burke, and religiously observed by Lanyard. A note or telegram of innocent superficial intent, addressed to a certain member of a leading firm of jewelers in Amsterdam, was the invariable signal for conferences such as this, which were invariably held in the same place, at an hour indeterminate between midnight and dawn, between on the one hand, this intelligent, cultivated, and well-mannered young Jew, and on the other hand, the thief in his mask. In such wise did the lone wolf dispose of his loot, at all events of the bulk thereof, other channels were, of course, open to him, but none so safe, and with no other receiver of stolen goods could he hope to make such fair and profitable deals. Now inevitably in the course of this long association, though each remained in ignorance of his confederate's identity, these two had come to feel that they knew each other fairly well. Not infrequently, when their business had been transacted, Lanyard would linger an hour with the agent, chatting over cigarettes, both perhaps a little thrilled by the piquancy of the situation for the young Jew was the only man who had ever wittingly met the lone wolf face to face. Why, then, this sudden awkwardness and embarrassment on the part of the agent? Lanyard's eyes narrowed with suspicion. In silence, he produced a jewel case of Morocco leather and handed it over to the Jew, then settled back in his chair, his attitude one of lounging, but his mind as quick with distrust as the fingers that, under cover of his cloak, rested close to a pocket containing his automatic. Accepting the box with a little bow, the Jew pressed the catch and discovered its contents, but the richness of the treasure thus disclosed did not seem to surprise him, and indeed he had more than once been introduced with no more formality to plunder of far greater value. Fitting a jeweler's glass to his eye, he took up one after another of the pieces and examined them under the lamplight. Presently he replaced the last, shut down the cover of the box, turned a thoughtful countenance to Lanyard, and made as if to speak, but hesitated. Well, the adventurer demanded impatiently, this I take it, said the Jew absently, tapping the box, is the jewelry of Madame Omber. I took it, Lanyard reported good-naturedly, not to put too fine a point on it. I am sorry, the other said slowly. Yes? It is most unfortunate. May one inquire what is most unfortunate? The Jew shrugged, and with the tips of his fingers gently pushed the box towards its customer. This makes me very unhappy, he admitted, but I have no choice in the matter, monsieur. As the agent of my principles, I am instructed to refuse you an offer for these valuables. Why? Again the shrug, accompanied by a deprecatory grimace. That is difficult to say. No explanation was made me. My instructions were simply to keep this appointment as usual, but to advise you it will be impossible for my principles to continue their relations with you as long as your affairs remain in their present status. Their present status? Lanyard repeated. What does that mean, if you please? I cannot say, monsieur. I can only repeat that which was said to me. After a moment, Lanyard rose, took the box, and replaced it in his pocket. Very well, he said quietly. 
Your principals, of course, understand that this action on their part definitely ends our relations, rather than merely interrupts them at their whim. I am desolated, monsieur, but one must assume that they have considered everything. You understand it is a matter in which I am wholly without discretion, I trust. Oh, quite, Lanyard assented carelessly. He held out his hand. Goodbye, my friend. The Jew shook hands warmly. Good night, monsieur, and the best of luck. There was significance in his last words that Lanyard did not trouble to analyze. Beyond doubt, the man knew more than he dared admit, and the adventurer told himself that he could shrewdly surmise most of that which the other had felt constrained to leave unspoken. Pressure from some quarter had been brought to bear upon that eminently respectable firm of jewelry dealers in Amsterdam to induce them to discontinue their clandestine relations with the lone wolf, profitable though these must have been. Lanyard believed he could name the quarter whence this pressure was being exerted, but before going further, or coming to any momentous decision, he was determined to know to a certainty who were arrayed against him, and how much importance he need attach to their antagonism. If he failed in this, it would be the fault of the other side, not his for want of readiness to accept its invitation. In brief, he didn't for an instant contemplate abandoning either his rigid rule of solitude, or his chosen career without a fight, but he preferred not to fight in the dark. Anger burned in him no less hotly than chagrin. It could hardly be otherwise with one who, so long suffered to go his way without let or hindrance, now suddenly, in the course of a few hours, found himself brought up with a round turn, hemmed in and menaced on every side by secret opposition and hostility. He no longer feared to be watched, and the very fact that, as far as he could see, he wasn't watched, only added fuel to his resentment, demonstrating as it did so patently the cynical assurance of the pack that they had him cornered, without alternative other than to supple himself to their will. To the driver of the first taxi cab he met, Lanyard said, La Bay, then shutting himself within the conveyance, surrendered to the most morose reflections. Nothing of this mood, however, was apparent in his manner on alighting. He bore a countenance of amiable insouciance through the portals of this festal institution, whose proudest boast and, incidentally, sole claim to uniquity is that it never opens its doors before midnight, nor closes them before dawn. He had moved about with such hilarity since entering his flat on the Rue Roger that it was even now only two o'clock, an hour at which revelry might be expected to have reached its apogee in this, the sole descente, smartest place in Paris. A less sophisticated adventurer might have been flattered by the cordiality of his reception at the hands of that arbiter elegantiarum, the maitre de hotel. Ah, Monsieur Lanyard! But it is long since we have been so favored. However, I have kept your table for you. Have you, though? Could it be otherwise, after receipt of your honored order? No, said Lanyard coolly. I presume not, if you value your peace of mind. Monsieur is alone? This with an accent of disappointment. Temporarily, it would seem. But this way, if you please. In the wake of the functionary, Lanyard traversed that frowsy anteroom, where doubtful wasters are herded on suspicion, in company with the cord of automatic Bacalanians and figurantes, to the main restaurant, the inner sanctum, towards which the naive soul of the travel-bidden Anglo-Saxon aspires so ardently. It was not a large room, irregularly octagonal in shape, lined with wall seats behind a close-set rank of tables, better lighted than most Parisian restaurants, that is to say, less glaringly, abominably ventilated, the open space in the middle of the floor reserved for a handful of haggard young professional dancers, their stunted bodies more or less costumed in brilliant colors, footing it with all the vivacity to be expected of five francs per night per head, the tables occupied by parties Anglo-Saxon and French in the proportion of five to one, attended by a company of bored and apathetic waiters, a string orchestra ragging incessantly, a vicious buck-nigger on a dais, shining with self-complacence while he vamped and shouted, waiting for the Robert E. Lee. Lanyard permitted himself to be penned in a corner behind a table, 
ordered champagne, not because he wanted it, because it was etiquette, suppressed a yawn, lighted a cigarette, and reviewed the assemblage with a languid but shrewd glance. He saw only the company of every night, for even in the off-season there are always enough English-speaking people in Paris to make it possible for La Bétaleme to keep open with profit, the inevitable assortment of respectable married couples with friends, the men chafing and wondering if possibly all this might seem less unattractive if they were footloose and fancy-free, the women contriving to appear at ease with varying degrees of success, but one and all flushed with dubiety, the sprinkling of demimondes not in the least concerned about their social status, the handful of people who, having brought their fun with them, were having the good time they would have had anywhere, the scattering of plain drunks in evening dress. Nowhere a face that Lanyard recognized definitely. No Mr. Banyan, no Comte Remy de Morbihan. He regarded this circumstance, however, with more vexation than surprise. De Morbihan would surely show up in time. Meanwhile, it was annoying to be obliged to wait, to endure this martyrdom of ennui. He sipped his wine sparingly, without relish, considering the single subsidiary fact which did impress him with some wonder. That he was being left severely to himself, something which doesn't often fall to the lot of the unattached male at La Bay. Evidently an order had been issued with respect to him. Ordinarily he would have been grateful. Tonight he was merely irritated. Such neglect rendered him conspicuous. The fixed round of delirious divertisement unfolded as per schedule. The lights were lowered to provide a melodramatic atmosphere for that startling novelty, the Apache dance. The coon shouted stridently. The dancers danced bravely on their poor tired feet. An odious dwarf creature in a miniature outfit of evening clothes toddled from table to table, offensively soliciting stray francs, but shied from the gleam in Lanyard's eyes. Lackeys made the rounds, presenting each guest with a handful of colored, featherweight celluloid balls with which to bombard strangers across the room. The inevitable shamefaced Englishman departed in tow of an overdressed Frenchwoman with pride of conquest in her smirk. The equally inevitable alcoholic was dragged out from under his table and thrown into a cab. An American girl insisted on climbing upon a table to dance, but swayed and had to be helped down, giggling foolishly. A Spanish dancing girl was afforded a clear floor for her specialty, which consisted in singing several verses understood by nobody. The chorus is emphasized by frantic assaults on the hair of several variously surprised, indignant, and flattered male guests, among them Lanyard, who submitted with resignation. And then, just when he was on the point of consigning the pact to the devil for inflicting upon him such cruel and inhuman punishment, the Spanish girl picked her way through the mob of dancers who invaded the floor promptly on her withdrawal, and paused beside his table. "'You're not angry, mon coco?' she pleaded with a provocative smile. Lanyard returned a smiling negative. "'Then I may sit down with you and drink a glass of your wine? Can't you see I've been saving the bottle for you?' The woman plumped herself promptly into the chair opposite the adventurer. He filled her glass. "'But you are not happy tonight,' she demanded, staring over the brim as she sipped. "'I am thoughtful,' he said. "'And what does that mean?' I am saddened to contemplate the infirmities of my countrymen, these Americans who can't rest in Paris until they find some place as deadly as any Broadway boasts, those English who adore beautiful Paris solely because here they may continue to get drunk publicly after half-past twelve. Ah, then it's La Bave, is it not? said the girl, gingerly stroking her faded, painted cheek. It is true. I am bored. Then why not go where you're wanted? She drained her glass at a gulp and jumped up, swirling her skirts. Your cab is waiting, monsieur and perhaps you will find it more amusing with that pack. Flinging herself into the arms of another girl, she swung away, grinning impishly at Lanyard over her partner's shoulder. End of chapter 7 Recording by Todd